Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. In a world... Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who's it? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world... Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so... Anyway, fuck yeah, pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron, we both do. Of course. I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model, or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot, the Crossfire 3 when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch, the JFX 2 if you're looking to up your new swoop game, the Leia as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast, or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, and again, the power of the internet bringing me another rock star. Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? <laughs> My name's Jason Maletsky. I'm an artist, I'm an athlete, I'm an adventurer. And I'm entrepreneur, a coach. You're a busy guy. 
Fucking A, I am. Fucking A. <laughs> I've been I've been keeping up with your exploits for a very long time. In fact, the first time our paths crossed, I, I think, was cross keys in like 2004, many, many years ago. Uh, and you've been all over the map, not just in the sport, but in life. And and uh, I, I've been wanting to chase you down for quite some time. I know that there's a, a lot of people that will be excited to see your name come up on the list of episodes. Now that's a couple decades ago now, Dean. I know. <laughs> I don't know how in the hell that much time got behind us so quickly, but it did. Yeah. I'm constantly astonished at how quickly the life just blinks by. And, you know, you turn around and you think, oh, yeah, I was just at that boogie. Shit, that was 20 years ago. You know? <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Well, it's funny, though, and I don't know if it's uh, um, just because the memories are so sharp because of what we do, but skydiving memories seem to stick really, really well. Well, don't you think there's a part of that that has to do with how our brain imprints, right? And and impactful memories and emotions, things that have a powerful emotion where they really leave an imprint on us are going to stay at the foreground. And things that are pleasurable, right? Sure. Kind of in the middle, the day-to-day, it just washes by and we tend to forget about the the, the ordinary stuff. Which is fine. I'm, I'm happy remembering all this kick-ass shit that's happened <laughs> Yeah. So, so in regard to um, not necessarily just skydiving, but anything extreme sports wise, how did you get started uh, in this? Has it always been in your nature? Yeah. You know, my mom was pretty smart to recognize that I was a kid that needed a lot of activity and she put me in gymnastics at a young age and I was the champion uh, high jump and pole vault and gymnast and I rode bicycles in like BMX bicycle rodeos and did all that kind of stuff as a kid so well before I ever started skydiving I was you know uh, one of those Gumby kids that just had to be flipping and doing somersaults absolutely uh, we seem to be kind of skipping in and out on the connection here a little bit. Yeah. So if, if I, if I miss some stuff, I'll get you to repeat. Um, so how did, uh, how did skydiving start to enter your life? I mean, uh, um, was that something that you had always thought about or was it? Well, I was that kid who jumped off the roof with a, you know, a black garbage bag. You know, I literally did that as a kid into the backyard that have the pile of leaves built up in the fall, right. you know, rake them all together and jump off the roof of the house. Like that was literally me. So I didn't see it really as a surprise that I started skydiving. But when I did actually start jumping it was because I was in a pretty dark place in my life. I'd been through a lot of trauma, hmm. a lot of really tough stuff in my early years. And I was 21 years old. And part of me really didn't want the parachute to open. I went to the drop zone, like ready, set, die. It's hmm. like, I'm t- I'm tired of you know the rough ride that I've been on. And if this doesn't work, fine. You know, I'm okay with it. Sure. Man, and, I, and I had a, that immediately I had a left turn, 90 degree left turn out. I don't know why I say left, but I always think that my life was on a trajectory. And the second I stepped out that door, it turned, turned to the left. Fairly <laughs> new life ahead of me. You yeah. know, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, I've, I've often thought, um, I'm sure you have as well. I've, I've known a few suicides in my life and people that, uh, just didn't want to fight that fight anymore. And I always wondered sure. what would have happened if they had done exactly what you did and went, you know, something, fuck it. I'm just going to go start living a really extreme lifestyle. And if I don't make it through, I don't make it through. And I think a lot of them would have found themselves in a similar situation as you did, which is, uh, oh, shit okay there's something else yeah yeah i can say within our even within our community i've seen our friends get to really challenging points in their lives and then decide you know what maybe i am going to start base jumping and they go out and start sending it off the bridge and all of a sudden the life just rushes back in and they're like okay i do remember what it feels like to feel good and to feel alive and to feel passionate and to love my life and, and love my friends and just go after it sure you know, and yeah. and a lot of us, myself included, take for granted um, that passion. And I've never hit that brick wall and never had to make that left turn to decide it's either this or nothing. Um, but I can imagine it's got to be a really eye-open experience, you know, to wake up that next morning going, there's there's something worth going for. That's, that's pretty spectacular. Yeah, I'm really, really grateful. I mean, the reason I'm sitting here today is skydiving and base jumping saved my life absolutely 
So it's not something you hear every day. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to to think when you think about it from an outside perspective. But if I didn't have these activities come into my life, I would end up this blue collar. You know, just grinding away. Sure. And, and that 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 would have been the end of it for me. You know? Well, now now let me ask you. So when you got started in skydiving, because you were going into it from such a dark place, um, what did that do in regard to the jump to jump fear levels that most people put up with? I mean, was it less for you, or were you still scared shitless, but not for the same reasons? No, I mean, I was fucking terrified. Like. <laughs> at- I'll just put some perspective on it. Okay. So at jump 50, after uh, I had six months in the sport, okay, I had started at a small static line drop zone in Canada. And at jump 50, I had gone on a trip to Florida. Somebody was going, a van load of people were driving down to Florida to go jump at Zephyr Hills back when it was Phoenix. And they suddenly somebody couldn't go. There was an empty seat in the van. I they offered it to me, and I said, "Fuck it." And I wrote myself a paper will. This is how scared <laughs> I was. I wrote my will on a piece of paper with a pencil, and I left it on my desk at home in case I didn't come back. You know, and when I was in the door of the plane doing my first solo from a high altitude on a turbine aircraft at a new place in a t- different country with all this unfamiliar stuff, I was fucking terrified, man. And even though I, you know, like part of me was the daredevil, go for it, show off, like fearless, you know, adrenaline junkie, that gymnast in me that just wants to like just send the somersaults. Right. At the same time, the ego part of me that that didn't know how to deal with all the feelings just was just I'm no, I am a point break kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Johnny Utah in the door of the plane. I have a parachute, but I have the same experience of when he's looking out the door and he's seeing Patrick Swayze going, flipping into, you know, his Bodie is saying, fuck you, see you later. He's like, no, I have to get over my fear yep. and just send it and and let go of who I think I am in order to, you know, go after who I want to be. And that's, sure. that is my story. That is was there ever a point um, coming from where you did and then getting into jumping that you look back at the the twist of fate that you went from not giving a fuck whether you lived or died or whether the parachute opened to being nervous about going out and doing those jumps? I mean, because the, there's a bit of a, um, tasty irony in that. So the whole full circle journey is incredible, right? I mean... Oh, sitting here as a, you know, it's going to be 30 years <laughs> next year. <laughs> right. Right. So sitting here looking at myself, first of all, I'm turning 50 this year and I can't believe I'm still alive. Okay. Right. Like I was stunned that I made it to 30. And then when I made it to 40, I was like, oh, okay. I don't have a plan. Yeah. Right. This was not in the plans. So now when I'm, I'm completely on the other side of the wheel of the Dunning-Kruger effect where I see, yeah, I'm a top, you know, a champion skydiver and I have all the experience in the world and I have all the knowledge in the world and I know how dangerous it is. And I'm not, I'm now just as, you know, powerfully informed about how scared I should be, you know, about (laughs) the risks and not nearly as willing to take the same risks that I was when I was in my twenties, not a chance. It's it's crazy, right? I mean, um, I, I, part of it for me is just, uh, shit hurts more at this age. I don't, I don't know that I'm nearly as scared of death as I am injury because I've done it enough now that the, the recoup and the rehab and the aches and pains that we've, uh, you know, uh, accumulated over the years of jumping. I'm more scared of that than I am getting myself killed. Well, pain is a really powerful teacher, right? It's right at the top of the list. And that pain comes in lots of different ways. It's not just our own physical pain. Cause yeah, like my elbow hurts really bad right now. I folded it backwards on a swoop landing one time when my hands were up next to my sides, you know, and now I'm doing some strength building and that elbow is pissed yeah physical the pain of losing our friends and family and seeing how dangerous this whole thing is and having Mm. to you know deal with the grief that comes with it is an it's a brutal reality of it all so yeah for sure powerful i think that's the those types of pains uh, 
you have to consciously make the decision at some point that you're you're just in it for life. You know, whether you continue to jump or not, especially when you get to our point, you've established such a large group of friends and such a large community that if I never make a skydive again or never go back onto the drop zone, I will continue to lose friends until the end of my life. It's just that's it. But you, you at some point you have to accept that that's that's how it is. And that's a tough thing to cope with. Well, isn't there a beautiful, uh, again, um, a juxtaposition in this? That's the same for everybody. Yeah. it's the, we, we kind of lie to ourselves and pretend that it's not going to be like that for us. If we were like, if I stop jumping, I'll stop losing friends. Or I'll stop losing family. Well, that's a line of shit. You know, that just it'll be postponed. It'll happen at a different rate. It'll be, a you know, the scenario will be different. People will die for different reasons. They'll die because they're sick more of the time than they'll die from an, you know, an accident. Uh, either way, everybody's going to die. So sure. fuck it, you know, like live life now. Right. What, what do you, how do you feel about one of the, the difficult things for me to cope with in regard to losing friends, um, with skydiving is so often it happens somewhere else and you get the message that mm -hmm. this person or that person is gone. Um, do you find that that makes it more difficult to deal with? So yeah, I'm I'm writing my book right now, my memoirs of my life, um, something I've been working on for quite a few years. And mm. a lot of this story for myself starts off with losing my dad who died. I was living in Toronto, Canada, and he died in California. Mm. Right. And so a very similar start. But that was the first death that I had to deal with in my life was my sure. father and at a great distance. And I never saw his body after he died. So the closure that comes from you know maybe you know putting your holding somebody's hand after they've gone very different you know when my mom passed it was a different experience i've been there with my friends one-on-one -on -one when they've passed and it's different than when they're at a distance mm. now that uh i think that's something that we have regardless of whether we're in the sport or not we're gonna have to learn to come to terms with that and sure I find it's almost easier at a distance. Um, I might have said the opposite when I was young, you know, but sure. now that I've been now that I'm been on this planet long enough to have experienced it a lot of times, I think I think it's easier for from a distance. Yeah. I've I've always found that um when I've lost someone at a distance instead of being there and not getting that closure, is I find that years later I'm still I still find that knee jerk expecting them to walk around the corner or expecting the phone to ring. Whereas with the people I was there for, that doesn't seem to happen. And I guess that's just a little mental twist. You know, there, you never get that closure. And that's a strange thing. You know, I kind of spin the wheel or the camera around the other way. And I think about it as how lucky are we to have a global family oh right? yeah like one of the things i love about this sport the nylon uh parachute sports whether it's paragliding hang gliding base jumping skydiving like you go anywhere in the world and you've got a family there people who are going to welcome you in you can show up at a drop zone with nothing in hand and they will feed you they'll give you something to drink they'll give you a place to sleep and you'll probably be playing in you know on a load even if you can't afford it before you know it, you know, oh, you yeah. get work, you know, it, it's the, the family's wonderful. So even though it's tough to, um, it's, it's hard to have such a huge family because people are at such distances all the time. So you know, example right now, I haven't seen Dukes in ages. Okay. Dukes is close to me, man. Like right. we are brothers and it's been a long time. Like, and we're feeling it. We're like, man, it's been a long time. We haven't been on the same part of the earth together for a bit. And so we're like, okay, well, when can we make it happen that we can line up, you know, our, our orbits sure. around this planet for a little bit and, and spend some time hanging out. And so I would, I would challenge us to say, here's the thing, like, instead of letting our friends pass and going, oh, I didn't, I didn't, they wasn't there when they passed. Let's go see all of our friends all the time and let's spend all the time we can with them. Sure. Or, uh, well, that's that's one huge benefit to uh, technology, even though it can be a, a bit of a, a backhanded uh, a way to do things. It's a bit of a curse as well as a wonderful thing. But one of the things that lockdown taught us, too, was 
you can put that technology to really good use and stay very connected to people that are on the other side of the planet as much as possible. Um, obviously, you want to be on the drop zone, hucking amazing loads and doing great stuff with them. But man, even just this kind of contact with people that you haven't seen in a while is can really heal things up. 100%. I'm a huge advocate for the benefits and the values of connectivity. You know, this is the information age, whether we're, and a lot of us don't realize that this is the information age. Man. Oh, this yeah. is when everything is available to everybody as far as education and connectivity. And you can just saturate yourself with as much goodness as you want. Or you can just let yourself be steamrolled by a bunch of shit if you're not just don't have a powerful filter, right? Like you got to have a strong filter to say this is what's okay to let in and what's not. It's the world hasn't changed that way. No, no. And it really is amazing. Now to to jump you back to uh, a bit more to the beginnings, you got started in the static line stuff and then you headed off to Florida to start jumping there. Um, How did you really kind of kick off uh, your career in the sport you know working wise in skydiving uh, or competing in skydiving if that's how you started out first yeah i it was competition driven i had a pretty good job when i was younger so i had the money to pay for the jumps and i got onto four-way formation skydiving teams early on and started doing training camps in florida with good coaches and starting learning to really be able to fly and so we would come to florida down to lake wales you know in march or in december and you know a couple times a winter get some you know do a high intensity camp do 40 50 jumps as a team and i did that for a number of years and eventually i moved as a team our whole team made a commitment everybody put a stack of cash into a pile and said here's the buy-in this is the ante and we're all going to go and live in a house together and we're all going to train for six months and our goal was to do 400 jumps Uh, team training this was the winter of 97 98 and we ended up moving to titusville and training spaceland okay um alongside the swiss team and of fx and um all the servers eric for day and vivian wegrath and you know just the plane was full of world champion skydivers who were turning loads and we were like the young guns the canadian national four-way team we wanted to be the national four-way team and uh that was that was the you know the the buy-in everybody moved down there and it's like a canadian group we're like gonna spend six months here training right and man it, it went to hell in a handbasket you know, the, my mentor, Sean, the guy who was the captain of the team, I had about a thousand jumps with him by the time I had 1500. Oh, wow. He hooked it in and he died swooping. Oh, man. Yep. Yep. Man. So, so that was this powerful motivator for me uh, because he had been my mentor and had really driven me to progress and had had literally taken me by the hand, shown me the ropes sure, and become teammates when he when he died i was left kind of treading water in in my life because i had all my eggs in this basket and i didn't know what to do next and so i pointed my energy towards take carrying his legacy forward and i wanted to he was the hot shit swooper of the day Mm. and so i wanted to out like take his mentorship to a new level sure and go out there and, and represent that cannot be piloting was pawn swooping back yeah. then yeah it was and and i started going to the competitions with his old parachutes and the parachutes that he'd been developing and decided to turn cannot be piloting into my vocation decided to make a career out of something that wasn't actually it wasn't a career yet. It was yeah. Uh, we, yeah. I'm, we're we're talking about a, a time in the sport when canopy piloting was um, still on the fringes, and it was still more of a hobby within a hobby than it was a competition. It was who can go dirt water dirt and get the messiest in the pond. Totally. Yeah. That was and it. there was only there was only twenty five or thirty people in the country who could even think about swooping the pond yeah you know, and and not smacking into it you know <laughs> so you've decided you're gonna you're gonna take canopy piloting forward in a time when that still hadn't been there so how how did you and the other swoopers start helping push the evolution of canopy piloting forward well credit where credit's due 
um, Lyle Presse and Jim Slayton really took the bull by the horns with the formation of the para performance games by Jim Slayton, the Margarita Island uh, Venezuela challenge with Lyle Presse, and then they partnered up to make the pro swoop tour, the PST. Oh, yeah. And they set up a bunch of dates around the country, and we would go around the country for a couple of years. And then we actually started going to Europe and doing the pro swoop tour in Europe as well. This made it my mission in life to win those events and to be the one who was collecting the cash prizes because that's how I was going to put food on my table. Sure. Well, so that's that's about the time frame that the, our paths crossed because the PST would go to Wildwood in Jersey, um, yeah. which was a great event. I mean, it, it was the the most public of the events that I could think of because they put that swoop pond right on the boardwalk. And you guys are literally doing your turns next to the Ferris wheel. Um, um, and I, hell, I was just shooting video and doing tandems over the boardwalk, but we used to love watching those competitions. It was just such fun. And the crowd who had no idea what was going on was just enthralled by it. Yeah, that was great times. I mean, that's definitely like the heyday of the sport. It'll never be the same as it was because there's a certain thing about being in our in our adolescence, right? When, <laughs> when we're just young and full of energy and we're not really you know reined in in any way the events were changing all the time like the actual goal of what we were trying to do during a swoop was still changing from comp to comp to comp and those those times are some those are the good old days like oh, oh, yeah. they'll never be another set of good old days like those yeah. absolutely i mean it was we used to wake up whether you were swooping or not and they had the i think it was the tuesday morning swoop club at, at cross keys mm -hmm. and everybody'd wake up at the crack of dawn and go hop in the cessna and yep. and uh then the end of the day would come around and um we had heath richardson on staff uh back then and he and i forget who he would fly with all the time would do two ways across the pond under the water that the fire department would arc into the into the pond to fill it up i mean it was amazing shit and it was like you said it was the just the beginnings of it all so it was all still the wild wild west i mean there were kind of rules but not really mm -mm. yeah heath was one of my i mean honestly it, it, in our careers we're given certain gifts and uh heath and i flying together was one of these gifts where we flew everything that we did was just this kind of using the force kind of approach to it, where we could just read what each other's doing and some of the best flying that i've ever done was flying with him and those days at cross keys like doing head-to-head -head swoops under that arc from the fire hose and laying <laughs> over synchronized wing overs together on the pond and, and it's just I, uh, man so many great memories oh yeah well and then to follow it up with um cross keys and its heyday was also the biggest party drop zone on the planet I'll, so I'll just say I went to the monkey claw <laughs> jam, the monkey claw jam. What was yeah. it called? Yeah. The, the jam. I went five times, I think. And I think <laughs> I jumped at the last one. Yeah. Once. You yeah, know? yeah. I don't remember jumping at the first few. It was just strictly show up to have a good time and socialize with everybody. Oh yeah. I mean, I remember when, uh, um, Cola and, uh, Egon from relative workshop were on the, the, um, the boogie circuit, bringing canopies and, and rigs out. And, uh, we got a hold of them one weekend at cross keys and they both didn't want to leave and were terrified to stay all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, some of my very, very, uh, dearest memories are from the time that I spent up there <laughs> so I'll, I'll diverge for a second please um Selwyn <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep. okay Selwyn Johnny Nine Lives yep Johnny Utah yep and and Will yeah and we would go out and hit all the buildings in Philadelphia in Jersey <laughs> City up in new york we were just like skydive all day base jump all night and we yep. and rob stanley right oh uh, muppets on vacation <laughs> <laughs> so just the list of there was a period in there where i was actually one of them i was the mentor for those mm. guys like we would go out 
at the end of the day and we we go to looking for trouble and we bring a bunch of packed rigs and find stuff to hop off yeah and those guys were beginners and i had you know a, a, quite a few more years and but they had all the energy and all the drive and i was all about jumping on their their um tailcoat you know like sure. riding in their en- their energy wake i'm like you guys cut trail and i'll follow oh yeah and i'll tell us i'll navigate which way to go oh yeah such good times oh, oh will my. will and selwyn the energy that just radiated off of those two was insane i mean crazy um, i'd only been at cross keys for i think a couple of days i had no idea what was going on i didn't know the reputation but i was a new camera flyer and tandem instructor and i'm just watching people landing on the back deck and selwyn and will land and come running past see me as a new jumper and go dude have you got any rigs cool can we jump them and just took two rigs they'd never seen and got on the plane because they didn't want to miss the next load i mean just out of out of their mind energy and then follow it up Mm -hmm. with rob stanley who was part wise old sage and part 15 year old crazy teenager all wrapped up into one man i can tell you so many rob stanley stories because he's from my hometown Uh. right and we grew like he was one he was the first a more experienced jumper that I encountered from another drop zone who who just just like I don't care if you have 200 jumps and I've got a couple thousand come on let's go you know yeah. and and we were doing four ways in the middle of the night with no lights <laughs> on bandit loads at the World Free Fall convention you know we were out jumping off buildings and towers he gave me his rig for a jet jump and was like come on take my 135 I'm like I jump a 220 you know it'll be fine <laughs> Fucking Stanley. He (laughs) was, he was as unique a character as you can possibly get. He, I'll tell you what, man, when we lost him, I think everybody felt the same way. They were so, so sad that he was gone, but they also wondered how he stuck around as long as he did with us. Cause man, oh man, that guy pushed it every single day. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen anybody go quite as hard as, as Rob Stanley. So you get into swooping, you, you've got the competition stuff going, PSC is going well, but you've transitioned into kind of a staple in the sport and, and aimed yourself very much towards the business side of things as well as uh, the, the sport and the pleasure of it all. How did all that start to transition? It's it's pretty obvious. I mean, that old adage that if you want to make a million dollars in skydiving, you need to start with two, right? So this is the truth of the matter is there's no, nobody's holding a retirement package out for me at going, come on, come do this job and you'll have a healthy retirement. You're like, right. There's nothing, man. There ain't shit. Right. You know? So the reality is by the time I had been, you know, really, by the time I was hitting world champion status in canopy piloting, that was 2007, 2006 and 2007. I was already going, okay, well, there's nowhere to go but down, Mm. right? There's only once you get to the top, you can sustain it for a period of time. And then after that, there's a downslope. And so I'm able to see into the future and go, well, there's not There's no net, right? There's nobody going to catch me. So I was looking at my teammates and we had a, uh, uh, we would do an annual retreat every year. The PD factory team started off with let's sit down and connect and look at each other in the eye and go what do you want from your life what do you want from this team what do you really what are we what are our goals collectively Mm. and individually where do they align and what are we going to do together to do something awesome and and that we couldn't do on our own Mm. right so at that 2006 2007 period we'd already been coaching a lot flight one had already been formed we had created a company to be the you know the wheelhouse for our coaching efforts uh pd factory team was its own entity it was a competition team it was a you know a you know a formula one team it's pro pilots it's all about competition and expedition and demonstration and the educational piece we put our arms around it so this is going to be our baby and we're going to sit down and we're going to partner with scott miller from freedom of flight and we're going to develop a program for civilian skydivers to have a much more comprehensive set of knowledge and training available than anywhere else that's available in the world. Mm. And then we're also going to make that available to the military marketplace. We, we had already had feelers coming in from some of the special forces teams who wanted to work with us. 
and we look at each other and said, Hey man, you know, we're all going to be 40. And before you know it, we're going to be 50. And if we don't have something to, to catch ourselves on the back end of this, we're going to be, you know, that 50 year old packer or tandem master or trying to scrape a living. And we all know what it's like. And I know some of you are listening who are that guy or that girl, yeah. you know, and, and it's not an easy downhill when your body's coming apart and you're 50 and you're trying to still throw drugs or pack tandems, right? you know, not going to happen. So it's, I mean, it's definitely, uh, um, I've got a few friends that are still doing it and that was always the, um, the scary thought was being the the 50 year old guy living in the trailer behind the tiki bar, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, and, but now to, to the other side of that coin though, I've got a friend who is exactly that and he loves every second of it. Um, So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just what is right for you. You know, what, yeah, that's it. You know, and, and the big, that's just a piece of it was like, we're pro athletes, you know, we were, we were training hard to be competitive athletes. And what we didn't want to go to waste is, and, and man, it has taken 15 years to like really bring this to fruition is we put a ton of energy, a ton of personal energy, a ton of money, mm. a ton of time, you know, just group energy, time and collective energy into figuring out what we're doing, sure. what, what we're doing right. And what we're doing wrong, because all of us had come from the school of hard knocks, mm. right? Nobody had had an easy ride. A number of us had bounced off the ground because we don't know what we're doing wrong. Sure. Right? And we'd seen our friends get broken, become paralyzed or die because the school, the system that was available in the world for learning how to fly a parachute it fucking sucked. Yeah. Okay. So there was just no, there's only a couple books out there. They're not comprehensive. They're missing a lot of parts. The, you know, the real uh, textbook had yet to be written. So we wanted collectively to sit down at the table and to put our heads together and to cut the educational path forward for everybody in the sport Mm. so that anyone who is coming into skydiving does not have to make the stupid mistakes that we'd seen made for decades with square parachutes, you know, and sure. the parachutes were evolving so much faster than our knowledge of how to handle them sure. and, and more how to teach other people how to handle them. So we, we made it our mission. I was going to say, I, I would uh, imagine that one of the driving forces behind flight one would have been that the evolution of canopies were dramatically faster than the knowledge of its pilots um and also the desire for people to get on those fast little parachutes well before they should have well before they had that knowledge base i mean all the instruction i ever got for downsizing was fly the parachute you're on until you can do anything on it and then you can downsize that was it and, you know, that, that's a powerful adage, you know, Bruno Broken, one of my canopy piloting heroes in the early days, that was always his modality was like, look, if I can't do a wing over with this canopy, I'm not ready to downsize to the next one. And that sure. applies to every canopy. Like if you can't make a 170, do a wing over and carve it across the pond, you haven't really learned to fly it yet. Sure. You know, and. And most people are going to downsize where they can't even have a decent landing. They can't even do a nice stand up on every single jump. And they're already downsizing. Never mind, do a wing over or drag a toe on a pond, right. you know? So, you know, it's perspective is uh, everything. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, uh, you still, uh, Flight One obviously is gaining popularity and doing uh, quite well in, in teaching up and comers, but you still must be horrified with some of the stuff that you see out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You say gaining popularity. We just recently passed 25,000 students taught. So that's, that's a pretty popular. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, I mean, shit, how many active USPA members are there right now? That's a good question. You know, yeah. what is it? 50,000, 60,000? Total ever? No, no, no. I mean, active right now, but I mean, that's incredible that you've gone through 25,000 students. That's, that's a huge number of students. Yeah. It's been incredibly powerful because we look at the classroom as an opportunity to learn, Mm. right? Right. When our instructors sit in a classroom, we're there to learn equal to or greater than the student is there. We're like, we've got 10 students sat in front of us, we want to learn from every one of their experiences, how we can better mold what we do 
to ensure that the best interest of the pilots that are coming into the sport is truly served. Sure. Sure. Now what's the, uh, I would imagine there's a slight difference in the way that you teach a civilian and military. What's the progression civilian wise, classroom wise, and, and uh, the military guys. So the, the, that is, that's a yes and no kind of answer. Yes. The rate at which we teach in the military environment is much greater mm. the the time frames are compressed and the number of jumps are higher uh because the military tends to be more focused on truly bringing a pilot from entry level to uh you know skilled level they want to ensure that they reach the level of skill that's necessary to be you know adequately prepared to deal with situations that are at hand where in the sport environment it's really up to the individual to choose what level of skill they're going to attain. Sure. So the that's the no is that we don't necessarily do it as fast, but the yes is we teach the exact same stuff. Awesome. Okay. Now this is the real thing where the the rubber beats the road with flight one, is that our you know over fifteen years of experience working with the special forces teams has forced us to level up our game. Mm. You do not maintain a position as a military contractor without delivering at the level that they operate at, right? Sure. You simply are not going to get the contract if you are not top tier professional. Okay. So we've had to move and constantly escalate, constantly improve and constantly refine what we're doing and how we're doing it to match with the expectations of these top tier teams. Sure. Right? Now that investment in ourselves as instructors has just immediately rolled right into the sport civilian side of our operation. Mm. So if you sit in a civilian classroom with flight one, you're going to get the exact same level and type of training that the special forces teams are going to receive, but you're going to get it repackaged in, uh, you know, a color scheme and in a modality that's going to fit into a civilian day at the drop zone. Sure, sure. Now, um, with the instructors that you have, are they going back and forth between civilian and military, or do you have dedicated teams? Uh, that's both and. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. That's got to be cool. I mean, uh, I know that having flown a little bit uh, for a couple of military contracts, and then obviously the majority being civilian, um, and even instructing um, military students in free fall, uh, military guys, I should say, that came out to do civilian free fall. Um, the military guys are yes sir, no sir, and it's a it's a, a slightly different approach to teaching than with the civilians. Or you need to be a little bit more laid back and and uh, um, feel them out. With the military guys, they just jump. Okay, <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot more feelings are allowed in the room in a civilian drop zone right <laughs> right in, in the military environment you have um people who are excellent at learning and mm. excellent at taking orders and excellent at saying yes sure i'll do that you know and in the civilian world we you know need to be handheld a lot more need to be pandered to a lot more so it's actually a lot easier to be an instructor for military Based jumpers than it is to be a civilian instructor because you, yeah, I in a civilian classroom, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I always said that um, as a tandem instructor and AFF instructor, you have to become a a bit of an untrained psychologist quite quickly uh, to learn how to read your students and figure out what best way to teach them. And you're right, the military side of things kind of takes that out of the equation because you're teaching them all the same way because they've been geared to learn in a specific way as well. Now, yeah, you, you so, so here's let me. Let me expand just a little please, bit, please, because I really love sharing this point because every time people hear, hear it, oh, and they get that aha moment. Uh, when the PD factory team was really getting traction in the early 2000s and we we were the pinnacle of piloting in the mm. world, the military establishment was 20 plus years behind us as far as the skill set that they were demonstrating. And the civilian, so the civilian world was at the leading edge. Sure. And the civilian training operations was a you know a dozen years behind. And so we worked really hard to get the civilian side up to the leading edge and the military followed. And now 
the military operations have cruised right by. Hmm. And if you were to have your first 50 jumps occur in the military environment now, especially in the special forces environment, when you're sitting there with 50 jumps under your belt, your skill level is going to surpass somebody in the civilian world who has hundreds of jumps under their belt because of the focused intention of the type of jumping that's being done. So the coin has completely flipped and the benefit to anybody who sits in a flight one classroom is you're getting that same modality where if you do come do two days with with myself or one of our instructors a typical course a weekend course in the 10 jumps that you're going to do you're going to get 100 jumps worth of value sure yeah Yeah. well it's funny that you say that because i vividly remember as a young uh, aff instructor too many years ago as soon as you found out your student was uh military you kind of went oh okay Mm mm-hmm all right, they're going to do what I say, but there's not going to be a, that understanding is not going to be there. And or it, it just, uh, you knew you were in for more work. And it's, it's very interesting to hear you say that that's exactly the opposite now. Yeah. Now, uh, outside of skydiving, you've also stayed motivated in many, many other ways. I mean, you've got a lot of irons in the fire up to and including the podcast that you do. I mean, how did all these interests start outside of skydiving as well? Yeah. So, uh, well, let me just say this. This journey from day one has been a spiritual journey, right? The coming into the sport, I was in a very challenged place emotionally, spiritually, like the being who I've always been has been had a relationship to the finality of life as a whole. Mm. So this sport has only ever amplified that. It's only ever said, hey, pay attention to what's going on around you and really gain value from the connection, from the experiences, from the beauty of it all, from really just, you know, truly appreciating skydiving, man. It has just made me really, really value life. Mm. You know, there's nothing like hanging under a harness, 13,000 feet in the air, toes dangling, barefoot, yeah, barefoot, no helmet, and strings, especially when it's a super tiny, nothing little parachute, and just going, how is this even possible? Right. And so the podcast that I co-host with Melanie Curtis, if you haven't heard of it before, it's trustthejourney.today. This podcast is all about just recognizing the journey that we're on, whether we like it or not. You know, it is happening. Life <laughs> is going by all the time and we can find the value and the gratitude and the love and the appreciation for it all. All right. We lost you for a second there, but you were talking about uh, um, the podcast with Melanie and kind of learning to appreciate the ride we're on. Yeah. Trust the journey dot today. Um, a number of years ago now I was, you know, I was kind of wallowing a little bit. I was in a part of my life where most all of us will experience we get a restructure somewhere in our 40s we start to kind of see the world a little differently in our lives a little differently and i reached out to melanie and said hey let's i i, I like what you're doing and i want to work with you and she said i like what you're doing and i want to work with you so we've been now working on trust the journey since 2018 this will be our fifth year done a little over 100 episodes and uh and man, it has just been the best thing ever. I'm so happy with this choice to work together and, and where this project's going. Well, it's amazing when you have the opportunity to sit and uh, um, not only have uh, good conversations with like-minded people, but take it in a proper direction that might lend help to other people. Uh, even this podcast uh, is generally for fun and, and uh, you know, big fish stories and, and origin stories for skydivers. Um I get a lot of people, especially um, you may have seen the beginner skydiving forum on Facebook is a huge forum of up and coming jumpers or people that are, are daydreaming about skydiving. And I'm thrilled that I consistently am getting messages from them, thanking me for stories like yours um, because they're ones that they wouldn't ordinarily hear. And for jumpers that have been around a while, um, people like to hear that Jason Maletsky was scared 
learning how to skydive. They want to know that shit because if they don't know you, all they know is the, you know, the lore and the big fish stories and all the amazing shit that you've done. And clearly he couldn't have been scared. Look at the stuff that he's doing. Um, so it's really neat when you have the opportunity to put stuff out that is helping other people. And it sounds like that's exactly what you and Mel are doing. Yeah, it's, you're, you're nailing it. That's that's the hammer hitting the nail right on the head. Our journey is laden with challenges, right? And skydiving is such a beautiful analogy. And I mean, if, if you're listening mm. to the show and you haven't made a jump and you're thinking about it, just send it. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> like the thing that's going to happen is we can sit here and we can kind of, you know, kick our feet and tread water and try and get some traction. But we, in the end, it's all just decisions. And I think that is what we learn as aviators, as pilots, as jumpers, uh, you know, as it, people who spend our life in the skies, we need to just make a choice. Like we've got to move. You can't just do dilly dally kind of, if you, if you spend time on that in between life is still going by, you know, <laughs> and you're, you're going to run into that brick wall because you know, it's coming at you. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Make big a decision. Time. Well, you know, I, I used to say it all the time. I've I've taken shit, I think 8,000 tandems over the, the course of my career. And I've had a lot of people that would never make a second jump, but I've never had one that regretted the first. Um, it's it's that living in a moment um, that most people don't get to experience. And you're right. I mean, it's a it's a spectacular analogy for what life can be. Yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for this whole journey. The people that I've met, the places that I've been, the perspective that you mm. gain, the perspective. I mean, you're a pilot. You spend you when you see the world from altitude, and especially when you remove yourself from the cockpit and you're you're just in the sky and you see how fleeting it all is and how important it is to really gain, take the opportunity to make these deeper connections, to teach others, to make really find the value in it all right like, oh yeah enjoy it while we can well and i mean you you hit it a couple of times on the podcast i think the biggest thing that i've gotten out of skydiving is the community um bar none the incredible people um all across the sport and all different walks of life that you get to meet and then there's the activity itself and i'm sure you've done the same thing many many times you find yourself in the moment thinking I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I get to do this. Uh, I don't know anybody else outside of our sport um, or for me outside of the cockpit who goes to work and takes thousands of pictures on his phone because what's outside his office window is just so fucking cool. Yeah. Who gets yeah, to do I, that? Yeah. Uh, that's the life we want to live, right? Where it's an inspired life. It's yeah. just breathtaking. Yeah. Well, it's funny now, I'm sure you, you obviously, I'm sure have a lot of connections outside the sport as well, but people outside the sport seem to have a very difficult time uh, understanding how those decisions you're talking about seem to come easier to us. And I am not sure I can answer that either. Maybe you can. I, I think that like um, big life decisions, changing jobs, moving to different countries, I've never had a huge problem with that after becoming a skydiver. It just seemed natural. All right take the leap, make the choice. But do you think that that's because of the sport? I think that when we learn how to operate in flow state, you know, a lot of skydiving is a flow state experience. The more time we spend in flow, the more often we put ourselves there, whether that's skydiving or flying a plane or riding a motorcycle or a bicycle, a uh, skateboard, anytime that we get out of thinking too far ahead, or thinking too much in our past and really just staying in our present moment, we start to act from our instinctual knowing of what's what the next move needs to be. And we're not thinking it through like cognitively, like, oh, this, we just know because we've trained ourselves. That relates into all the different parts of our lives. We start mm. feeling the right and the wrong move, you know, and I'll I'll take an analogy. Here's a great one. So if you're a skydiver, try this sometime, okay? At any time when you're under your parachute and you're hanging in your holding area, you could turn right to go behind you to go further downwind, or you could turn left to go behind you 
it kind of doesn't make any difference because you're just heading the same direction either way. But one of them's going to feel right and one of them is going to feel wrong. <laughs> and that inner intuition, that knowing, oh, I should turn left this time or I should turn right this time, that that overlays into our confidence to make the bigger picture decisions in the rest of our life. Sure. Now, sitting where you are at this point in your life and at this point in your career and knowing where it all started, uh, did you ever imagine that this all would have happened? I mean, you've been on an exceptional ride over the last almost 30 years now. Yeah, it's been an incredible. And one of the reasons I'm writing a book right now is because it's so unfathomable to myself. There's, I could not imagine it. It's outside of the scope of my own comprehension for that to be a possibility, never mind be something that I've actually lived and experienced. Sure. So I'm trying to get it all down on paper so that I can even just review the you know, insanity of it all for sure. myself and share it with others, you know, to have that, that reference. Uh, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it's kind of funny because even a, a, the average skydiving career, just a normal jumper has stories that the, the rest of the world, the non-jumpers and and the the more mainstream life won't understand. Uh, but for someone like you, and I've had more than my fair share of stories as well, I find myself telling stories to non-jumpers, not believing what I'm saying. And I was there because mm -hmm. I, I almost start to hear it through their ears and realize, yeah, the shit that we've done and been able to do and been, I hate to use the word blessed, but it is blessed to be able to do these things is almost unreal to people that haven't been there. Yeah. The, the, the bigger picture of this all, you know, I, I look at the, the journey and I shake my head just in wonder and in awe. Oh, and yeah. I remember, I try to remind myself, that every day has the potential to hold these experiences, right? Like what is the next amazing thing around the corner? And in, in the skydiving, it sets us up with kind of that wide-eyed child's view where we can just be like, wow, anything is possible. Absolutely anything is possible if we just allow it to be possible. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it's it's having the 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 drive as well, which I think starts to come as soon as you get into something like that. I mean, I think it's its own um, its own driving force. As soon as you get into skydiving, it becomes the whole motivation for everything. But that also leads to so many other things in life, which is fantastic. It's, con it's contagious, right? Yes. It's contagious within ourselves, and it's contagious in groups and the people that we, you know, that we connect with. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I always ask as I get towards the end of the podcast um, for advice for two different groups of people, uh, people that are just getting into skydiving and kind of want to know what they should be thinking and and how should they should be thinking and and people that have been in the sport for a long time and maybe getting a bit burned out and wondering if they should stay in the sport and why they should stay in the sport. So speak to those two groups of people, if you would. You know, my advice hasn't really changed much over the last 20 years. And I feel really good about that because I, I feel like what I have to say still has the same value. All right. So if you're coming into the sport and you want to figure out how to navigate, get as much reputable advice from as many different sources as possible, right? Mm. Collect your own big pool of information and then make your own decisions about the best way forward based on the aggregate of all that information together, right? Don't get stuck in, I've got one person who teaches me and that's the way. Get a big pool of information and it's easily available to everybody out there. Hmm. And now swing the compass needle the other direction. You've been in this your whole life. You've been in it for a long time. You know everything just like me. <laughs> Go get a coach. Go try something new, you mm. know, be a student again and fumble and be terrible at something, you know, be terrible and remember what it's like to learn. Anyways, and set our egos aside and go have fun being a student and sure. all of a sudden it's fresh and new. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the, the, it's funny that you say that is the, my greatest accomplishment in the sport is knowing, uh, or coming to grips with and happily accepting the fact that some of the stuff in the sport, I just suck at, and it's fun. 
I thoroughly enjoy being the worst person on a skydive and knowing that I have something to learn from all these other people because uh, it's it's so fun to draw that knowledge out of other people, especially when you have access in this wonderful sport to such rock stars and such talent. I mean, skydivers are extremely accessible. I, I don't know too many that are above going out and giving a tip here and there and, and helping somebody out. I mean, this podcast is proof of that. Yeah, I mean, I just received a package in the mail yesterday and I made a little post. I put it up. I'm going to put it up today. Dan BC sent mm-hmm. me a copy of his book. Okay. When I was learning to skydive year one and I was a total rookie I looked at Arizona airspeed as the pinnacle because they were they're mm. the very best in the the best of the best. And I dreamed of being as good as those guys one day. And it wasn't that many years later that I was sitting next to them in the plane that we're becoming friends. And now this, you know, Dan BC, one of the, the biggest mentors in our sport, sending me a, a you know, a autographed copy of his book, continuing this mentorship journey, you know, 30 years down the road. And it, that's the great thing about being in such a, a small sport is that our heroes and our mentors are so accessible and we can get that, you know, direct connection with these people who are so important. And well, and it's generational as well, because you are that to a lot of the people that are coming up, you and the organization that you and and your gang have set up is doing the exact same thing and it's it's just furthering the sport i mean it's just giving back and of course the huge benefit as you know is there's not really an age limit on skydiving i mean you can keep jumping very late into life as long as you're healthy so it's it's this ongoing thing you know it's not going anywhere Mm -hmm. yeah now um i want you to tell everybody how they follow you social media wise how are they going to find out about flight one how do they find out about courses and all that stuff and more about the podcast no problem flight-one.com will get you to our website and flight one sport will find us on instagram that'll get you to everything flight one related uh trust the journey dot today spotify Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Patreon, SoundCloud. We're on all the channels. I highly encourage you to jump on there and take have a listen. You can find me at jasonmaledsky.com. A new website just launched. That's its first version. So I'm <laughs> treading water there with trying to get myself started. Sure. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm uh, I'll tell you what I'm really going to be looking forward to the book coming out. This is something that I would uh, I'd like to get my hands on. So please make sure that you're keeping everybody aware um and uh get to writing man cuz I want to I want to read it. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really enjoying the process of reliving all of the adventures and really trying to find the value and recognize you know why why share all this stuff what's it really all about. So Sure. Thanks. Sure. Yeah. Well, hey, look, man, I cannot thank you enough for taking uh, time out of your morning to sit down and talk to me. Uh, uh, There's about a billion stories that I'd like to get out of you, but uh, we'll save that for round two. Thank you, Gene. It's a true pleasure, man. I've really enjoyed chatting with you as well. Awesome, man. You take care. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com by Pussfoot. That's right, head to Pussfoot.com, the Extreme Sports Collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com, Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com, check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or princesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.